If you would, take your Bibles and open with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> Our text this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, through chapter 7, verse 1. As we continue our study through the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 14 of 2 Corinthians is on page 967 of the Red Bibles. And if you're able, I want to invite you one more time to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, hear the reading of God's word. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion has a believe, does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their people. And they sh I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, that I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity this morning to gather and read your word, to hear your word, to hear your word preached as you commanded. And yet, Father, I ask for your help. In the preaching of your word, would you enable me to be empowered by the Spirit so that the preaching of the word might not be a demonstration of the wisdom of man, but, but a demonstration of the Spirit of God working in power among us so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on the one who raises the dead. And Father, in this text specifically, as it calls us to holiness, I pray that you might make us a holy people. If we have been holding on to sin or aligning ourselves with the thoughts and ways of those who pursue sin, would you draw us to repentance this morning so that we might find ourselves more aligned with the one who lived and died and was raised. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. About 30 years ago, J.I. Packer wrote a book called Rediscovering Holiness. And in that book, he wrote this, What do we Christians chiefly value in our leaders? Our preachers, teachers, pastors, writers, and other folk with key roles in our setup? The answer seems to be not their holiness, but their gifts and skills and resources. Ironically, I read that quote from J.I. Packer the same day that I was listening to a podcast while mowing the grass, uh, in which they were looking at the rise and fall of many celebrity pastors. 
And interestingly, the diagnosis of the podcast was the same thing I'd read from Packer, that, that we are a people who seem to value and prize charisma over character and giftedness over holiness. Now, perhaps someone could push back and say it's really unfair to look at some celebrity pastors, perhaps who have gone through immoral fallings and, and look at their lives and kind of cast a shadow over perhaps hundreds and thousands of loyal, faithful, lesser-known pastors. But I do think it's fair to say that we as believers, no matter whether we're known or not known at all, we are at times easily impressed with the same things that the world is impressed with. We're drawn to value the same things that the world is drawn to value. And make no doubt about it, the world prizes giftedness and charisma much more than character and holiness. But this temptation that we may feel in ourselves to be impressed with or to value or to be drawn to the same things that the world values as, and as impressed with is not a 21st century phenomenon. In other words, these things aren't new. Even the things that the, that the podcast was going over, which was just, just released this past Wednesday, these things aren't new. If you look at the book of 2 Corinthians, this is precisely what was going on with the Corinthians. There had been a group of people, Paul mockingly calls them super apostles, in chapter 11, verse 5. A group of people who were coming to the Corinthians, who were touting to the Corinthians the things that they should value. They were saying to the Corinthians, you need to value great rhetorical ability, the ability to get up and speak and be impressive. You need to value the fact that someone can, can go around speaking and, and charge large sums of money. You need to be impressed with uh, great uh, rhetorical skill and, and flair and, and list of credentials and recommendations that men can bring with them. And when the Corinthians evaluated Paul in light of those very things, Paul fell far short. In fact, Paul will acknowledge in chapter 11, verse 6, he's not an impressive speaker. He did not charge large fees to be a speaker. In fact, he worked among the Corinthians for free. And Paul did not show up into your town and into your church with a list of credentials and recommendations. He came simply preaching Christ and Him crucified. And because of this, the Corinthians had been tempted with these false apostles, these super apostles whispering in their ear, they had been tempted to dismiss Paul and to sideline Paul and to not listen to Paul. We've seen that through the first number of chapters as Paul has written again and again and again telling them, this is why I do things the way I do or this is the ministry I have. In some sense, Paul has been defending his apostolic ministry in these first number of chapters. But in the text we find ourselves in now, Paul makes himself a bit more pointed. 2 Corinthians 6.14 through 7.1 is not a text in which Paul is being autobiographical. He's not, he's not reflecting on himself and explaining why he does things, why he doesn't charge money, or, or why he doesn't have a list of recommendations, why he isn't some great, impressive speaker. 2 Corinthians 6.14 through 7.1 is Paul turning the mirror around so that the Corinthians can look at themselves. He's calling them to repent and them to walk in holiness. In this text, in an outright way, he finally identifies those people who are whispering in your ears, they are unbelievers. 
They're on their way to be damned before God on the day of judgment, and you need not listen to them. You need not be identified with them. In this text, Paul calls out to the Corinthians and calls them to repentance. But the reason this text then can be so helpful for us is that if you and I feel the drift in our lives to begin to be impressed with or to begin to value and to align ourselves with the practices and purposes and ways and thoughts of the unbelieving world around us, then this text calls you and I back. It calls us to repentance. It calls us to to look at our lives and make sure that we are walking and aligning ourselves with Christ and His Word. Now, the text basically has in it two elements. One element is that of exhortation or command. In other words, there are three different places where Paul gives the Corinthians commands in this text. Let me show you all three of them. I think all three of them basically say the same thing. The first one is in verse 14, at the very beginning. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's the first command Paul gives us. The last one comes at the end of our text, chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, now here's the command. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. So it begins with an exhortation. He ends with an exhortation, and right in the middle, in verse 17, he's quoting from Isaiah 52, verse 11, but he gives us another command that's just like the other two. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. He gives us three commands that all have to do with pursuing holiness. Then, Paul surrounds those commands with reasons why we should do them. So if if 14 begins with a command, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, it then is followed with reasons. You'll see the word for, that is because, and then he gives reasons. Or in verse 16, what agreement has the temple with idols? For, he's going to give more reasons now. And then at the very end, after giving these reasons in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, since, That is, because of everything that I've shown you since we have these promises, beloved, and then he gives a final command. So the two elements in our text are commands and reasons. And for that very reason, then, I want to make just two points to the sermon. In the first one, I'm just going to summarize as best I can in one statement, a statement that I think summarizes Paul's three commands. And then second, I want to make a second statement that that just my hope is, summarizes the reasons Paul gives us for why we need to obey his commands. So the first command, the first point I want to give you is this. Do not align ourselves with the values of the world, but walk in holiness. The command to us is that we do not align ourselves with the values of the world, but walk in holiness. As I said, this one statement is my attempt to summarize the three commands we have in the text. But Let's look at the commands one by one. First, in verse 14, Paul words it this way, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What in the world is Paul talking about? Well, let's just break it down in its most basic elements. A yoke was a wooden crossbar that you would put on two animals who were pulling something. 
The reason that you needed to do that is because you could imagine if, if maybe two animals were pulling a plow or perhaps pulling you, and you had them both strapped up to the object they were pulling, but they weren't yoked to one another, the two animals could decide to go in different directions. But the way the yoke worked, the way this wooden crossbar would work, is you would put the crossbar across both the necks of the animals, and it would bind them together. So that if the animals went one way, they both had to go. If they went the other way, they both had to go. It was, a, it was an item that was meant to, to align them together. And the reason that Paul's using that imagery here, do not be unequally yoked, I think is because he picks this very imagery up from Jesus. You may remember in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus in 28 through 30 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, when Jesus called us to follow him, he calls us to take his yoke upon our own necks. It's as if Jesus is saying, I want to align you with me. My purposes, my plans, my thoughts, my ways, my values should now all be yours. If I would go this direction, I want you to turn and go that direction. I want you to follow me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The Corinthians then are being told by Paul, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, now sometimes we mention this text Specifically, this text is brought up often when we respond to a question like, should a believer marry an unbeliever? And the question is obviously no. We know that from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul makes that clear. But I don't think that's first and foremost what this text is about. In verse 14, in other words, Paul is not writing this because the Corinthians are marrying unbelievers, although a fair implication of this text is that a believer should marry an unbeliever. But Paul is writing this verse because the Corinthians were listening to these super apostles, as Paul calls them. They were listening to these unbelievers, and they were aligning themselves with them. They were evaluating all of life in the same way these men were evaluating life. They were, they were making their purposes the same way these men were making. And Paul says, take that yoke off of you. Do not align yourselves with them. You're thinking like them, and they are unbelievers. That's the first command Paul gives. Second, in chapter 6, verse 17 then, in this quotation from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 11, Paul says, Therefore, go out from their midst, this is verse 17, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. The idea in its original context is when the Lord is calling His people out of exile, drawing them out of Assyria, for example, or later out of Babylon, He is telling the priests specifically, those who handle the vessels, those who handle the instruments that are used in the temple, He says, when you go out from their midst, I want you to be separate. I want you not to touch any unclean thing. I want you to be holy. In other words, the call to holiness in verse 17 is simply the same call that Paul worded in verse 14, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. God is calling us to live a holy, distinct life as believers, to shine as lights in the world of darkness. Now, one thing that you could be 
perhaps confused about when you look at verse 17 is you might think, is Paul saying here that as believers, we really need to have nothing to do with unbelievers? After all, the language is go out from their midst, be separate from them, touch no unclean thing. Well, no, we shouldn't take it that way because we know if you've read 1 Corinthians 5 and Paul's first letter that we have in the Scripture to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul explicitly said, when I told you not to associate with sexually immoral people, I did not mean the people of the world. Paul, Paul noted in 1 Corinthians 5, he was warning them against believe, the professing believers who were walking in sexual morality. But Paul says, listen, if you were going to avoid unbelievers altogether, you would need to go out of this world. So Paul is not saying that we have to avoid unbelievers at all costs. That, that rather, we can have friendships with them. We can do business deals with them. We can greet them and interact with them in the market, right? Exchange goods with them. This is, this is not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying, though, is you need to be separate from them in the sense that you need to be distinct from them. We need to live holy lives. Or finally, chapter 7, verse 1 since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Again, Paul's exhortation, whether it is not to be unequally yoked, whether to, to be separate from them, touch no unclean thing, or now to cleanse ourselves from every defilement, is all about holiness. Paul is calling the Corinthians, and he is calling you and me to live holy lives. Now, I want to say, I think this is the great threat to us in our day, that we would do the very things that Paul is warning us against. Now, now here, I, I don't mean perhaps exactly like the Corinthians were tempted. <clears throat> the Corinthians were actually hearing people tell them, don't listen to the Bible. Don't align yourself with Paul. My guess is that today you and I are not going to find ourselves going home and having people come to our door and saying, <clears throat> don't listen to the Word of God, don't read the Word of God, don't obey the Word of God. That's my guess. But I do think that the temptation that you and I face every day is to align ourselves with the values and the ways and the purposes and the practices of the world around us. And, and I don't want to suggest that ours is a day that is more evil than any day before. I know better than that. The New Testament talks about having temple prostitutes. Our day is not the most evil. It's perhaps no better, but it's not the most evil it's ever been. But I will say this. I do think there are certain pressures in our day that are heightened. For example, think about back to your teenage years, or if you have children, Think about what we talk to our children about. Don't we warn them against the reality of peer pressure? Peer pressure, right? The idea that uh, there's a group of individuals, a group of friends, perhaps that your kids want to belong to. They, they want their approval. They want to be impressed with. And so what these friends do or think or value, we warn our children, don't we? Don't be overwhelmed by peer pressure. Perhaps not the pressure of them saying to you, do this and do that and say this, as if they're bullying them to actions. But no, just the pressure that comes with saying, I want the approval of my peers. 
I want to be thought of as cool or impressive, and so I want to dress the way that they dress. I want to watch the things they watch. I want to talk about the things they talk about. I want to practice the things that they practice. I want to value the things that they value. All of us who have grown up know that pressure. I can think of my own life and think of the, the pressure I felt to compromise my Christian character simply because of the great pressure we feel to want to belong and be approved of by those who are around us. Well, think of today. <clears throat> when I think of my own experience, I can think of a few people at Reedland High School on the outskirts of Paducah, Kentucky. Those were my peers that I felt pressure from. Now, think of what the teenager feels today who is able to open a phone or a computer and be exposed to the way that people all over the world dress and think and practice and do and live and value. Do we not see the heightened pressure that our kids feel to yoke themselves to unbelievers? to align themselves with the ways of those who are not even belonging to Jesus Christ. And so, first of all, I know there are a number of teenagers in the room, so I just want to speak to you directly. <clears throat> right now, I, I want to say to you very clearly, I think one of the greatest weapons against holiness that the devil has is to convince you to be approved of by your peers. I would say the greatest weapon against holiness the devil has is to convince us to be cool, but I don't even know if cool is a cool word, right? <clears throat> so so I, I won't waste that. I know hip isn't the word. Um, and I won't get out of thesaurus and see if any of those works. Um, but I simply want to say this. If you're a teenager, the best thing that you can do in your life right now is not ask Will what I do garner the approval of my peers, but ask, is the way that I'm thinking and what I'm reading and what I'm watching and how I'm living, is that going to bring honor to Jesus Christ? But brothers and sisters, we deceive ourselves if we think that this reality is only felt among teenagers. As adults, we feel the same peer pressures, don't we? When we think about our lives, we too want to be approved of and to belong, for others to be pleased with us and praise us. And the world has all kinds of instruments to pipe into our televisions or our computer screens or the phones that we carry around in our pockets, all kinds of images or, or scenes or, or things that they tell us these things are good and right and acceptable. And the call of the Scripture is Cleanse yourself from every defilement. Be separate, be distinct from them. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. As Paul would say in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The Bible calls us to be salt and light, not to lose our saltiness, to lose what makes us distinct. And so the first call, the first exhortation, the first element of our text is this, that you and I must not align ourselves with the values of the world, but we must walk in holiness. 
And then Paul's going to give us reasons why, which brings us to our second and final point. We must walk in holiness because we are God's temple and His sons and daughters. We must walk in holiness because we are God's temple and His sons and daughters. As I mentioned, right after the command of verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, Paul begins to give reasons why we should obey that command. He begins them at the end of verse 14, for, and now he's going to ask a series of questions. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? Now, when we read that, it's easy to answer those questions very, very quickly. Righteousness has, has nothing in, in, in common with, with lawlessness. Light has no fellowship with darkness. Christ has no accord with Belial, which is just another name for Satan. The believer has, has nothing, of, no portion with the unbeliever. In the agreement between the temple and idols, there is none. But what I don't want us to miss here is that Paul isn't now asking some abstract question. It's not as if he is simply thinking, let me just think of two things that have nothing in common. You know, what does, you know, a breathing animal have to do with living underwater? No, 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 Paul's being very strategic here. The reason he brings up these specific questions is because the first element he describes here, righteousness, light, Christ, believer, temple, are all ways he's identifying us. You see, when you and I place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are credited with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus' perfect obedience is counted for us the second we believe. So when Paul asks what righteousness has to do with lawlessness, he's describing who we are. When he, when he describes us as light, when Jesus Christ opens our eyes, or as the, the, the language of 2 Corinthians uses, when He shines the light of the gospel into our hearts and opens our eyes so that we see how glorious He is, we become so distinct from the world in that moment that the Bible describes us as lights in a world of darkness. When we place our faith in Christ, we are united with Him so that we are so intimately bound with Him, we become one. This is the reason why marriage is created to point to the intimacy of Christ in the church. We speak of a couple union between a man and a woman becoming one because it is a picture to us of the relationship of Jesus Christ in the church in which we become so united, so one in Christ that the Bible refers to us as believers as the body of Christ. It's why when unconverted Saul, before he was converted and became Paul, was on his way to Damascus after persecuting the church, Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's making the point, I'm united with my church. They are my body. Fourth, when we place our faith in Christ, we become believers. We are those who are identified by, by faith in Jesus Christ. And then finally... The Scripture describes us both as individuals and as a church of being the dwelling place of God. God's Spirit indwells us both individually and corporately as a church. And so, what Paul, when he asks these questions, is saying is, what do you, who have been credited with the righteousness of Christ, have to do with lawlessness? What do you, who have been made the light of, of the world, the one who, who shines in the midst of darkness, what do you have to do with darkness? 
What would you and I who have been united with Christ so that we are one with Him have anything to do with Satan? What portion do you and I who are believers have to do with unbelievers or, or what agreement do you and I who, who, in whose uh, lives and whose presence the Spirit of God dwells so that we are His temple, what do we have to do with idols? Paul is asking these questions so that we begin to realize who we are in Christ and therefore see that a lack of holiness has no place among us. But then he really makes it clear in verse 16. He says, what agreement has the temple with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now think about this for just a second. Think about the temple in the Old Testament. In some sense, the temple was a frightening place, wasn't it? The temple had the most holy place, the, the place where, where, where God would manifest His presence among the people. The Ark of the Covenant was a, was a picture, a, a representation of God's very presence among His people. And so in the most holy place, only one man could go in there and he only once a year. And when he went in, he went in with fear and trembling, lest being in the very presence of God, he die. If we think he walked into there nonchalantly, just think for a second about when they were transporting the ark. You remember they were, they were carrying the ark on oxen, and when the ark was, when one of the oxen stumbled and the ark was about to fall, and Uzzah reached his hand up just to steady the ark, and when he touched it, God smote him. God killed him so that he lies there without breath in that very second. Don't think for one second, anyone would have walked into the most holy place in God's temple with a nonchalant attitude. Nobody would have thought, I'm going into the temple today, I may commit a little bit of sexual morality. I'm going into the temple today. You know what? I may spend my time in there gossiping and backbiting about some others. Not a chance in the world would have anyone have thought that. And we know that, don't we? If you and I had been a high priest and we were going into the temple, no doubt we would have walked in there with trembling. Now think for a second what Paul is saying to us. He's saying to us, both as individuals and as a church, you are God's temple. How dare we pursue unholiness? How dare we think that certain things are acceptable in our lives? that the Bible explicitly condemns. And then, in verses 16 all the way through 18, Paul just doubles down. If we think that, that, that Paul is simply stressing that we're God's temple, he says, and I want you also to understand that you are his sons and daughters. You see, what happens at the end of verse 16 all the way through verse 18 is Paul strings together these Old Testament quotations. You, you can see them because if you have one of the red Bibles, it's set apart, uh, indented on either side, so that the text is telling us that, that, that Paul is quoting from the Old Testament here. Now, what's crazy is that Paul will start with a text that looks like he's quoting one text, but then he intersperses another text. Let me show you what I mean. If you look at verse 16, there where he begins to quote, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and they, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay, you keep looking then at verse 16. I'm going to read to you Leviticus 26, 11, and 12, because I think you'll see clearly Paul's drawing from this. But note as I read it, and as you're looking at verse 16, note the differences. So here's what Paul says, or here's what the Scripture says in Leviticus 26, 11, and 12. 
I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. It's a text about the temple, right? God is going to put the temple among his people. He's making a covenant with his people. He's going to walk among them, and he says, you will be my, God. You will be my people. I will be your God. Now, when you read Paul's quotation there in verse 16, it sounds a lot like it, doesn't it? I will make my dwelling among them and will walk among them. I will be their God and they should be my people. All of those elements are in Leviticus 26, 11, and 12. But the one thing that's different is that when Paul quotes it, he speaks in the third person, doesn't he? In Leviticus 26, 11, and 12, he speaks in the second person. I will make my dwelling among you. I will walk among you. I will be your God. You shall be my people. Well, is there a text where where the Scripture says... Almost the same thing, but uses third person? Yeah. In Ezekiel 37, 27, the prophet says, as the mouthpiece of God, my dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In other words, if you take the language of Leviticus 26, 11, and 12, and then you take the language of Ezekiel 37, 27, and you combine them together, you get what Paul's saying here. Now, why would he do that? Because Leviticus 26 is about the temple. Ezekiel 37 is written at a time when God is talking about gathering his scattered people from all over the earth so that he might bring them together so that they might be his children. The reason Paul's combining them, I think, is because he's saying, you're not only God's temple, you're his children. And look, he does it again in verse 17. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. That's coming from Isaiah 52, 11, the verse that, that, that Avery read as he did our middle scripture reading. Isaiah 52, 11 is a text in which God is calling the people to come out of uh, the captivity and the oppression that there's in, and he specifically talks to the priests about the temple. He says, you who carry the vessels that are, that are involved in the temple... Touch no unclean thing. Be separate from them. Come out from their midst. I want you to be pure because you're tending to the temple. But when you read Isaiah 52, 11, that text does not end with these words, then I will welcome you. You know what text does contain those very words? Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 34, where God says, I will bring you out from the people and welcome you. The exact same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the exact same word that we read here in welcome. I will bring you out from the people and welcome you out of the countries where you are scattered. You see what God's doing? He's Paul's doing again. First text dealing with the temple. Second text, I'm calling you out and gathering you as my own. And then finally, in verse 18, and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This text may be a bit more familiar. It's from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, dealing with the temple. Here's what's going on in 2 Samuel 7. David lives in a really impressive house as king. And he looks out, and the place where God's presence is dwelling is a tent. That's what the tabernacle was, a tent. And so David looks out, and he says, I live in a really nice house. God's dwelling in a pretty pitiful house. I'm going to build a really nice house for God. And at first, Nathan the prophet says to him, that's great, have at it. But then God says to Nathan, no, 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 go back and tell David, no. You're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. God's doing a play on words here. I'm going to make a dynasty from you. David, I'm going to to raise up king after king after king from your line. 
And unlike Saul, when one does wrong, I will not remove my steadfast love from him. Rather, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, do you notice the difference then in this quotation? It doesn't say, and I will, be, I will be a father to you, and you shall be a son to me. It specifically says, you shall be sons and daughters to me. And we might say, well, come on. Paul's not going to quote verbatim because he knows that there are women present as well. But I don't think Paul's just playing fast and loose with the text. Is there a place then in the Old Testament where, where God says, I'm going to gather my sons and daughters? Yes, there is. Isaiah 43, verse 6, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Once again, the first text deals with the temple. The second text deals with God gathering His children, His sons and daughters, so that they might be His. And then Paul says this, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. You see what he's saying is, because I've shown you that what God has promised, that He would be in the midst of His people so that they would be His temple, and that they would be His sons and daughters, His children to whom He is a father, and for whom He has steadfast love, because we have the promises, because we are God's temple, and because we are God's children. He says, brothers and sisters, cleanse yourself from every defilement and walk in holiness. We might say it this morning, this way. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived and died for our sins and was raised from the dead on the third day, has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Brothers and sisters, because God has made us His people, because He has made us His children, do you need any more reason to walk in holiness? Remember who you are. I was reading a book a couple of weeks ago, actually written from a, by a sociologist. It was talking about why good people divide over politics and religion. I have a problem with the title. But nonetheless, one observation I think he made that was quite good is this. He was talking about how when we make our decisions on what we stand for or do or believe, oftentimes we do it simply because we want to be accepted by those around us. Interestingly, he was making the point that individuals decide where they want to stand often politically, not on their own convictions, but they decide where they want to stand because they look where everyone around them is standing. I think that's likely true in a number of cases. He argues, in other words, that we feel the pressure to know that we belong. Do you then see what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1? He's saying to us, don't yoke yourself to unbelievers because there is one to whom you already belong. You are God's temple. You are God's sons and daughters. Therefore, cleanse yourself from every defilement. 
Walk in distinction. Do not align yourself with the thoughts and ways of the world around you, of their values. Make your body an instrument for righteousness. And so this morning, the call that this text has to us, I think is the same call that Christ commands us with. When Jesus says to all who would come after him, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. In other words, Jesus knew that it would cost us in this world to follow him, but he calls us to follow him anyway. So if you're not a believer this morning, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, it means turning your back on the values and ways and purposes and practices of the world. And it means bowing your knee in faith to Jesus Christ who lived and died and was raised. But if you do, you will become the very dwelling place of God among his people and you will become a son or daughter of God. So I want to plead with you if you've not placed your faith in Christ this morning to do that very thing. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, if you've professed your faith in baptism, if you're a believer in good standing with an evangelical church, then the way that we are going to show this morning that we have answered Christ's call to take up our cross and follow Him, to walk in holiness is by coming to the table. And the way we're going to come to the table is this way. Uh, Aaron and I are going to be standing down front, and we'll just hold out the trays. The trays each have a stack of two cups. The bottom cup has bread, the top cup has juice. You'll come by, and you'll just take a stack of two cups, and then we'll go back to our seat. We'll eat together in a second, and we'll drink together. The way that we'll come to the table is each row will exit to the outside, come around, get a serving, and enter back into your row from the inside, so there can be constant traffic. If you are in the very back, if you'll come to my right, and if you're in the balcony, if you'll come to my left. And if you aren't a believer this morning, you've never professed faith in Jesus Christ, as I said earlier, I call you to that, but if you think, well, I don't know what to do because I don't want to come to the table, I don't want to profess that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ when I'm not, if you would feel most comfortable just getting up and walking with everybody else and just bypassing the table, that's fine, or you can just stay where you're seated. But either way, this is a call for us as believers publicly to affirm and profess that we are following the one who has called us to walk in holiness. So let's take a moment of silence this morning before we come to the table. The musicians will come forward. Uh, Aaron will join me up front. 